Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks given to the Farnham U3A World History Group. The Great Depression, a talk by Andrew Cole, covering the period from October 1929 to September 1939. Today's presentation is, it's a very large topic, so I've had to focus and bring it down in size, and there's so many angles to it. Today I'm going to focus on what was the Great Depression, what actually happened, what were the causes and the remedies. Now, I've had to group the two together because some of the remedies actually turned out to be the causes, if that makes sense. And then what were the consequences, both immediate and uh, in the longer term. I'm going to focus, I'm going to do a worldwide quick tour of it, but to be honest today I'm going to mainly focus on the US, because uh, that's where the centre of it was, uh, and I'm also going to do a, a focus on, give a quick view of four different countries that are representative of the different patterns of what, actually what happened during the time. There's a great danger that this all focuses on all the numbers, of course, so I'm going to try and bring a bit of the people aspect to it as well. What, how did it actually affect people's lives? I'm particularly going to focus on employment and welfare. There's inevitably some politics in this. There is in nearly every presentation we give here, so I'll cover that as well. I'm going to apologise about the economics. There is a bit of economics in this. For those that aren't on that side, I'm going to try and keep it straightforward. For those that are economists, I'm going to apologise immediately because I'm a layman. And if I get it wrong, you can tell me afterwards. And finally, the story which I originally intended to give is one about how the story has changed over time. How has history represented it? So I'm going to get a bit of a flavour of that as we go. Just how much media coverage has there been? My research found 538 books on the topic in the English language. There will be more, but I've used both the US and the UK libraries uh, and some other sources with copious cross-referencing. So this will be the vast majority of the books out there. I found 120 TV documentaries out there, mainly American ones, but not exclusively. Uh, And then I started to look at social media just to see how much is it covered there. YouTube has over 10,000 entries. Now, that's excluding the band called The Great Depression, which is a heavy rock band. I I know you're all fans. Um, But I've excluded those. There's about 10,000, 11,000 entries in that. And then I did that big mistake. I looked at Google, and there's 25 million entries on the topic. And no, I didn't search any of those. Actually, if you're a Facebook fan, there's actually very little on Facebook. Nearly all the Facebook entries tend to point you back towards YouTube. So there's an awful lot of material out there, much more than I actually ever wanted to see, if I'm honest. So the story today is an amalgam of me reading about 13 books, and then I've used other books and papers as sources as we go. What is it? What does it actually happen? So I tried to do, get a single sentence that would describe what the Great Depression was, and this is a sort of amalgam of the best I could get from the books. So I'm going to read it as a quote. It's the longest and most severe economic downturn in the history of the industrialised world, causing widespread and sustained unemployment, hardship and social unrest. So this statement nicely gives some boundaries to it, but I'm going to have one sentence, it can't say everything. Where did it happen? Well, it was a worldwide impact, and I'll give some more about that in a moment. But it was mainly on the industrialised countries at first, but it had such knock-on implications that it hit many of the agricultural-based economies as well. And within nations, and this is quite an important point, the extent of the Great Depression impact was quite varied. So it wasn't all a universal thing. So the danger with the statistics you'll see today is it doesn't really reflect the individual impact. 
Now, when did it happen? So a depression is normally defined as starting at the economic peak down to the lowest point, and then the time to get back to where it started. So the general view is that the general depression started with the Wall Street crash in October 1929. But there's quite different views in the books of when it actually ended. Most books say it went all the way up to the start of the Second World War, and I'm going to use that as the basis definition today. Though you're going to see later on that actually it's not really quite telling the whole story. So I'm using the period 1929 to 1939. To get some sense of the scale, let's use the industrial nations definition here. And this is the curve for the 20 largest economies over the period 1920 to 1940. So uh, the first 10 years are before the Great Depression. The ones in yellow, the yellow background, are the ones in the period I defined earlier. Um, now... The way I've done this is I've used a thing called the gross domestic product per capita. And the gross domestic product is roughly about how much economy makes each year. And per capita means per person. And what you can see on this chart is it's very clearly a, a good steady growth period. Again, this is global, well, top 20 nations wide. And then we saw a severe decline and then it came back again, roughly get back by the start of World War II. So I think that gives a reassurance against the definition if it's broadly correct. The numbers on the right-hand side are the sort of indicators that would be used. So the GDP went down by 15% from peak to trough, and it took 10 years to recover. At the bottom there are some numbers, and it took me quite a lot of calculations here using various data. In the 1920s, the average population across the world, unemployment, was around 4% of these 20 nations. That rose to about 17% during the, at the highest period, so that's roughly about 23 million more people unemployed. And I've excluded China, which is one of the comments is you can't get any numbers on China in there. That is something that we could not live with today, those equivalent performances. It would be drastically different from anything we've seen since. But let's get behind the, the headline numbers there. Most nations had a peak economic growth, a peak period in 1929, just before the Wall Street crash. You can see that in the second column. An exception is Australia that was already in deep trouble before then, uh, from 1926, and some great books on the, on the Australian situation. Conversely, most countries' low point, their trough, was between 1932 and 33. An exception there is India, which had a lengthy downturn that ran all the way up to 1938. And if we look at the figures of each of the nation's economies from their peak to their lowest points, we can see why the US story has such a high profile. It really did go from boom to bust. It really did go, minus 30%, that's a heck of a number to go down by. But Austria and Germany both had large falls after 1929, and alongside them was France and the Benelux neighbours. Australia and Latin America were also in difficulties. But in contrast, China and Sweden came out of it relatively well, at around minus uh, 6 to 7% drops. The UK's decline in the early 30s was also low. But I have to put this into some sort of context. To put this into perspective, in 2008 crash, we got a 4% decline in the UK. So actually, all those numbers are far worse than what we saw in 2008. But the danger is we just see the peak to trough, which is the worst statistics. And there are lots of sensationalist books that focus on those numbers. The end part here uh, shows that for the decade as a whole, 29 to 39, the nations' experiences vary quite considerably. 
Actually, a few nations did very well. Most countries had some form of growth over the decade. It's the US that hadn't, by the break of World War II, hadn't recovered. And so it's the US experience and their media has gone on to dominate the Great Depression story. And, and it's their end date that's really what we're being using today, even though that's not true for a worldwide situation. But look at those growth rates, 30 plus percent growth. That's not bad over a decade. We'd be, we'd be pleased about that now. So I'm going to do a quick worldwide tour. I'm going to do four nations because their stories are very different. And actually there's some really interesting, maybe extra presentations around these if, if people want to uh, cover it. So the US story in the, in, the, in the roaring 20s was a pretty good growth rate of 2.5% per annum. A, a small dip straight after war because there was a surplus created. The UK, everyone says in the books, the UK was in the doldrums in the 20s. And frankly, that's what continued into the 30s as well. And of course, we had the general strike and all sorts of things happened as well. Um, but the German situation is quite interesting there, is that they had a faster growth rate in that period than actually the USA. So their economy was doing very well. There was one very nasty dip, you can see the red there, uh, and that was when they had hyperinflation because the central bank overproduced money and the economy was out of control. But the, probably the best performing economy, one that if you're a business you want to be in, which is the Swedish economy, which grew nice and steadily at 43.7% per annum during the 1920s. Lots of reasons why each of these. But overall, you can see the economies were growing at least to some degree during the 1920s. I should also point out the little blue dots and the green dots and the red dots. And so that was pre-war. That was 1910. And what you can see there is just how much the American economy, pre-war to post-war, grew. It was already the world leader. About 1900, it took over from the UK. But it actually made a lot of money and became a very strong economy because of World War I. You can't say that in Germany, which of course lost a lot, a lot of wealth. However, the German story is very misleading, the gross domestic product. The other side of the coin is how much are you in debt? So you can be making lots of cash, but if you're in debt, you're in trouble. And this is a chart from two different books from 1965 and 1971. The chart on the left is about the inter-allied, so our side as it was at the time, and who owed money to whom after the war. There's lots and lots of numbers in there. There's a much more complicated version of this chart as well. But the bottom line is you've just got to look at the shape of where the arrows are going and where, who, who owes the money to whom. Actually, it's the US. So the flow of the money from the debt is to the US. So not only were they doing well economically in terms of GDP, they were owed a lot of money as well. On the right-hand side is the central powers, the other side as it was at the time. The reparation debts, which I think we're going to have a full presentation on in a few weeks' time, so I'm only going to stay on the economic side of it today. They, as a set, after a Treaty of Versailles and the 1921 London Conference, these were the agreed numbers. I say agreed, I mean the Germans and that didn't have much say in the matter. Um, so, and there were two different numbers that were published. One was the guaranteed amount of money that they owed, $15 billion guaranteed, and the $35 billion, which was the headline number widely published, which was, if the economies go okay, this is how much you're going to have to pay us. Now, just to put that into some sort of context, because these numbers are a bit meaningless, the $15 billion is about equivalent to half the UK spends today in today's money. So in any year, government spend is about half that number. So these are quite big numbers that they had to pay. Now, in reality, Austria and Turkey were completely bust. You know, Bulgaria and Hungary could pay a small amount, so actually all that debt ended up on Germany. And there was lots of recriminations and, and discussions around it at the time. 
those numbers on the previous page look like good GDP, but actually the European economies were very fragile because of this horrible debt chart. By the time, 10 years later, in 1929, when the Wall Street crash happened, the size of the debt didn't go down, it actually went up. They started borrowing more and more money from the US. So by the time the size of the crash came, this chart looked a lot worse in terms of owing money to other countries. Punch has always been very good at capturing the, the mood and giving a bit of dry humour or dark humour to the matter. And this was their publication of their chart about the debtor's position. And it really covers two, two different features in this one, is the German writing an IOU on the back of a Frenchman, Frenchman writing an IOU back on a Brit, and a Brit writing, I pay you to the Americans. None of them are facing each other because they just wouldn't talk to each other. This was a major time of inter international relations breakdown over this matter. So now adding in what happened in the 1930s for these four nations, the fortunes differed quite significantly. The US decline in blue was deep and didn't recover until 1939. More about that later. Initially, Germany's economic decline was almost as bad as the US, but then spectacularly recovered from 1933 onwards. Here I've separated the year into two parts. The Weimar Republic in red is the period from 1930 to 33, which was a period of decline, chaos. And the Nazi era in black from 34 to 39, which saw strong GDP growth, though of course it was completely unsound and not really a real basis for growth, but at the time it looked spectacular. UK and Sweden saw dips after the Wall Street crash, but these were shallow and short compared to the others. And Sweden thereafter had a very strong economic growth. The UK relatively was lacklustre once again. And most people, most of the books write about the UK saying, the UK has talked about just the whole interwar years as being a period where we didn't really perform particularly well economically. So today I don't have the time to go into the story behind each of these, but it's wrong to say that all the countries performed the same, that it was a worldwide depression in the same form. Let me simplify this in terms of pictures. This is my personal view, summary of everything that I've read. There are countries that did well, countries that were in the economic doldrums, those that lost in terms of real economic hardship, sustained, which, which covers you know, high levels of unemployment over a long period, across widespread across their populations. And then those that actually lost out because there was actually a regime change. Now, for the, the hardship countries, so you can see most of the countries are actually in the, the, the common hardship level ones there, yeah? And, and most of those did have government changes, but the democracy was largely sustained. It just that the people that were in power were chucked out and a new democratic figure came in. That's clearly not true for Germany and Austria, which both had overthrows, uh, and we know what happened thereafter. China and the UK were in the economic doldrums. They didn't do particularly well during the period, but it was Scandinavia. If you look at the figures, they had a fantastic period. The country I haven't covered in there is Japan. I wanted to mention it because it moved from some economic hardship early on to an economic winner, but it still ended up with regime change. There was a military takeover in the 30s, and the guy who's renowned for bringing the success of their economy using what they call Keynesian economics got assassinated. So it wasn't a great ending for that one either. So it doesn't necessarily mean that because you had such a terrible economy, as we'll come back to this later, that you ended up with regime change. Actually, you could have a great economy and end up with regime change. So the two aren't necessarily correlated. Just before we go on to the USA, I just wanted to give you a breakdown of the books that I looked at. 
I didn't read all 538 of them, by the way. Some really good ways of actually finding out what each of them covered. 220 of the 538 books, the USA New Deal. There's good coverage of economics and politics, but actually most of them cover the two together because you can hardly deal with the economic factors without understanding the political dynamics behind it. So there's quite a lot of topic around that as well. But some really great books around the people aspects that get really into the people's stories, which are, are, are quite emotional uh, and very revealing. Three quarters of all the books that I've found are written about the US. European-wide, now I didn't read any German or Italian books on the matter. I couldn't really find very many. Any ones that were worth their salt seems to have been translated to English anyway. But most of the books really are focused on the US. There are some really good worldwide books, but they are incredibly heavy reading. So let's go on to the USA, the USA experience of the Great Depression. The US economy, again, I'm using that GDP per capita over the whole of the 20th century. And as we know, it's been a great, great success story. The problem is that nasty, nasty dip in the 30s, which is, of course, the Great Depression. The GDP went down by 30%, 46% production. So that's nearly half of their production capacity went missing uh, over that period. Prices went down by 30%. Now, that's a plus and a minus. We'll talk a bit about that later. And about a quarter of all, all people were unemployed. A, a controversial story in itself. Now, I've focused so, quite a fair bit on the numbers so far, so let's have a look at it from a different perspective. In the USA, in the 30s, Roosevelt got a, the Farm Security Administration who got photographers, and they travelled across the country documenting poverty. Their aim was to create awareness and empathy of hardships while showing courage and resilience of the people. Here are two of the quarter of a million of photographs that were taken by them. The first depicts a migrant mother and her children in a makeshift tent. This picture is everywhere. It's in every book. It's one of the most famous pictures. And the second shows refugees living in the, out in the outside of California. The photographs were hard-hitting and are part of the Great Depression folklore, particularly in the US. It's, it's a story they keep telling themselves. Now, most TV documentaries, American or otherwise, use video footage from the time with a narrated voiceover interspersed with talking heads of people's experiences. Videos like that are very helpful, and you do get start, start to get a feel for it. But I'm always a bit worried about that music in the background that sort of plays on the emotional strings. You, you lose some objectivity in doing that. But nearly every video, including the National Archives in the US, uses music background. So it's obviously an emotive story they want to tell. And before I move on, I just wanted to is look at it from a slightly different perspective now, and that's the three presidential eras that were in the time. Though they're not the only players, their actions or inactions is a good part set the agenda for this. So the first is Calvin Coolidge. and He was president from 1924 until early 1929. He took a laissez-faire stance, a government should keep out of business. He is characterised as what they, we would call today Teflon-coated. By doing little, nothing could be blamed on him. He dodged a bullet in post during the boom years, the Wall Street crash occurred six months after he left post. Herbert Hoover was a businessman and then was Secretary of State for Commerce under the Coolidge administration. He presided over the peak to the trough era. He was very unlucky. And the economy was at its peak to its trough. Books have quite different opinions over how well he did. And the last is Franklin D. Roosevelt, a man of his times. A lawyer and a career politician, he was actually governor of New York from 1928 to 1933, the Wall Street crash period. 
Pre the crash, he was very pro-free trade and business autonomy, but he changed his tune. Post the crash, he became a reforming governor, promoting programmes to combat the economic crisis. And alongside his role in World War II, he's best known for his New Deal that took America in a new direction. Let's move on to the stock market crash, the Wall Street crash, and America's entry into the Great Depression. This chart shows the stock market growth in the 1920s. It's crazy. In five years between 1924 and September 1929, the Dow Jones Index, that represented at that time about the top 30 largest companies, grew from just 100 points to 380 points. So that's a nearly four times growth. It was really the roaring 20s. In contrast, the London FTSE Index rose by 30% over a 10-year period. So a massive growth. But when it crashed in October 29, there were a few upturns, but the trend was downwards. So how long did the Wall Street crash last? Most of the books say that for three-month period, by which time the market value had halved. Others say longer, but then the lines start to become blurred between what was the stock market crash and what were the four Great Depression causes. The market, however, continued to fall, and it didn't bottom out until 1932, by which time stocks had lost nearly 90% of their value, below that of a 10 years earlier. It didn't return to its original level until 1954. But the root causes were, were underway way before 1929, so let's explore them. The US's 1920s boom was consumer-driven. Home appliances, branded foods, radios and cars. There was widespread use of rent-to-own, what we would call higher purchase. Borrowing to pay for goods. Credit purchasing being promoted heavily. Consumers became comfortable with being in debt. The second part was that stock trading had largely been the preserve of professional traders and the wealthy up until World War I. This changed with the introduction of government liberty bonds to fund World War I. By the war's end, 20 million individuals had brought such bonds. Importantly, it introduced a large number of people to the notion of buying financial products. And as liberty bonds matured, banks and brokers were ready to cater for a new class of investor. Banks bought brokerage firms. The National City Bank and its trading subsidiary, the National City Company, expanded across the USA and used aggressive selling tactics. Its head was a charismatic but shady Charles Mitchell. Think of the Wolf on Wall Street film if you've seen it. Other banks followed into this new business opportunity, targeting the new naive investors. And new technologies arrived, such as universal stock ticker machines. These enabled trading expansion across the USA, providing the public with easy access and speedy training. More throughput, more trade. This slide's slightly more complicated, but it's probably critical and probably one of the biggest factors. The American system, and it's still in place today, encourages share ownership through a thing called buying on margin. A would-be investor is able to broker part of the stock price with their own money and borrow the rest from the broker on what's called margin. This chart, and the chart is 2019, so it's, it's current, shows someone with £10,000 of their own money buying £20,000 of shares, half on margin, i.e. borrowed. So when the share prices go up, the investor gains, paying the broker their interest and making some money for themselves. Now in the 1920s, buying on margin became the norm for most of the public to get their shares. 
And the amount on margin grew from not 50% borrowed, 50% not, but to 80% to 90%. So just to put that into reality, if you had $100 and you walked into a broker, they would persuade you to buy $1,000 of shares and 900 of it you're borrowing. And this was often unsecured debt. You didn't have to put up your house. You didn't have to put any asset up at that time. So, of course, this system only works if the market grows. Come if a market fall, brokers demand money back from the investor. The investor's got no collateral, so what do they do? They have to sell their shares. Then the next one sells the shares, so you get a run on the shares. And surprisingly, that pent-up danger is what came reality. By March 1928, share prices became vaulting leaps, and that term's used in a lot of the books. Speculation had outrun business values. And here are two examples of the popular shares of the day. General Motors grew by 4% in just two hours. There was no announcement of results. There were no new cars. And then again, the following Tuesday, it went up again by yet another 2%. It was all driven by speculation in the market. And Radio Corporation, the dar one of the darlings of the investors, rose by 15% in just one day, on, based on no facts whatsoever. Throughout 1928, new daily share trading records were launched every day. There were big announcements in every paper. In fact, if you look at the New York Times, it's just a boring headline of more money, more money. Market dips were soon followed by large gains. Some people earned more from their stocks growth than they earned in their weekly pay. There was a lot of unscrupulous activity at the time. Traders, brokers and banks had trading relationships that wouldn't be allowed today. Insider dealing was rife. It was later revealed that Albert Wiggin, head of Chase National Bank, shown here on the right, had shorted 40,000 shares of his own bank, effectively betting against his own company, just something you just couldn't do today. And investment products were created with no sound commercial basis. They were just made up. There were pyramid schemes, and many investment trusts, and we've got a lot of trusts around today, gave no insight of what was in their portfolios. They were completely blind to what you were investing in. As an example, at the later Commission inquiry, and there wasn't a Commission inquiry later, it was exposed that Goldman Sachs, one of the famous banks today, launched an investment trust which took public investments of 90 million, and you were charged $104 per share. Later, it was found afterwards to be worth only one and three quarter dollars. Just unbelievable numbers. The picture of J.P. Morgan, he was the figurehead, the most powerful investment banker. Even though his bank had not been active in many of these unscrupulous schemes, it turned out that he ran a VIP club. Members got inside tips and special rates on stocks. Members included President Coolidge and many of other politicians. Syndicates were developed with many ruses. Many newspapers and radio commentators were shown to have taken bribes to promote shares and certain stocks and talk favourably about the market. Oh, that afterwards there were very few prosecutions, nearly all of them settled out of court. So how did government react to all of this? The general consensus is, in books is that they did very little. The Federal Reserve has largely been portrayed as being incompetent or impotent. It had complex structures, a board of 12, with 12 autonomous banks that sort of ran by committee, and lots of ambiguities and lack of accountability. Books generally agree that by the time the board realised the dangers of the overheated market, its members feared any actions they would take would trigger a collapse and they would be blamed. So they didn't take any action. In the end, they, they, all they did was change interest rates, something that we're playing with at the moment, actually. These were unduly low in the 1920s 
and surprisingly lowered in 1927, spurring on even more buying of shares. Seeing the error, they raised the interest rates three times in 1928 and a further again in August 29. These large increases towards the end probably helped cause the crash. So in the end, they did get blamed. And as for politicians, President Coolidge was steadfast that government should not interfere in business. He applauded the thriving economic boom, made key appointments to support his view of don't touch, and steered those involved to not regulate the markets. Herbert Hoover was Secretary of State of the Commerce. His instincts were also to leave business alone. But he paid more attention to the issues. As president from early 29, he saw the overheated market and tasked officials, civil servants, to uncover the issues and take action. They received robust assurances from businesses and banks and reported back to Hoover that no action was necessary. This is about three months before the crash. The Senate Committee on Banking Commission and Currency had hearings from 1928 on brokers' loans and stock market manipulation. They wanted to separate legitimate investment from gambling. There was a lot of posturing, but it led to nothing but hot air. The reality was that the forces that were driving stocks up were stronger than the resolve and practical actions that government did take or tried to take, and the market was left to burn itself out. Now, what's hard to fathom is how investors failed to take the lessons of history at this point. There have been many stock market bubbles in the past and recent scares. In 1925, there had been the Florida land boom and the subsequent collapse, where lots of people lost money. And the consumer boom was already fading by 1926. The demand was falling. Once you'd bought your car, your radio and your vacuum cleaner, you really didn't need a new one straight away afterwards. Social historians have looked at why people didn't see this, and three reasons are often given. There's a thing called crowd contagion, where people get emboldened and into a frenzy by others. There was a lack of investment know-how. Speculators didn't ignore the signs. They didn't actually know what to look for. And really interesting that the large immigration in the US in the early 1900s, there were 15 million new people joined of a population of about 100 million. So 14% of the population. And they all wanted their part of the American dream as they arrived. They were seen to be very large part of the investment profile. There were many experts that voiced concerns that the stock market rises were unsustainable. And many of those have got some fantastic quotations, it's all going to go wrong. But many had warned previously, each time, instead of a crash, the market grew. So they hurt their credibility and they were called moaning minis. But equally renowned figures were loud and robust about the soundness of the market, that nothing is going to go wrong. Uh, many had invested in interests and some turned out to be rogues. But at the time, they looked very credible. Ultimately, for a long period, people did not want to hear or believe the negative voices. So the crash itself, what actually happened? The first panic, what's called Black Thursday, mind you, it's strange now, because we had have, we have Black Monday and Black, all that type of stuff now, which is a very positive buying experience, but this time the blacks meant something quite different. Black Thursday was a strange day. In the first two hours of trading, there was mass selling. And then the big investment bank leaders, some of them shaky, met at lunchtime and agreed a plan. One of them strode onto the stock exchange floor and bought large amounts of blue chip shares with free banks' money, and the shares rallied to almost the point of where they started. But on the following Tuesday, the market fell by 12%, what's now called Black Tuesday. Panic and fear set in amongst investors. There were many more days like this to come. And a key factor in this is technology. Stock ticker machines around the country were completely overloaded running two to three hours behind the actual share prices. 
So investors didn't know what prices they were and what they were selling at. This increased the panic. It's equivalent to a modern-day website crash. The difference at that time was their livelihoods were at stake. Now, there's lots of published detail on what happened, who said what, who did this and that and the other, over the crash period before and the weeks afterwards. The detail makes interesting reading, but the reality was the die was cast by those other factors much earlier. The bloated market, driven by speculation, was in free fall. But in summary, there were a lot of factors that caused this crash. It's not just down to speculation by people. Let's move on to the Great Depression. Most experts at the time didn't foresee that the stock market crash would cause a wider economic. They saw the two as quite separate things. And at the time, there were only one and a half million investors, shareholders. The crash shattered consumer confidence, and that's what the economy boom had been based on. From now on, the US and the European fortunes become intertwined. So I'm going to focus a bit on the US, but I'll give some examples of what's happening in Europe at the same time. The first fact thing to happen is that despite all the rhetoric, the US is, loves protectionism. So they love free trade, but they also like to protect themselves. It's a very strange set of views. So they started a protectionist war in 1922, and which other countries followed. And this hindered trade and meant that those reparations couldn't really be paid back to the USA. So it actually started to shoot the country in its foot, but it, it keeps happening with the US. I don't know why they keep doing it. But after the Wall Street crash, there was a, there was a bill that was, had stalled in, in Congress, but it was signed by Hoover. And this, that's the first red triangle on the left-hand side, and it's called the Smoot-Hawley Act, um, which imposed massive tariffs on 20,000 goods. We'll come to the numbers in a bit. And this immediately caused a chain reaction. The red triangles on the left-hand side there are the responses from the other countries. So Canada immediately put in retaliatory tariffs, followed by France, followed by Germany. Now, we were a bit slow in the UK because we loved free trade and we were almost honest about it. And so we kept for the longest period, but we found all their products being dumped. And if you look at the steelworks and the problems we had on steel, was because American steel was being dumped in the UK. In the end, we said enough's enough. And so we pulled out and we pulled a trading group in the British Empire, and anybody that was outside of that group got massive tariffs. So we did our own equivalent retaliatory response. Now, it wasn't until 1934 that Roosevelt came in and went, this is all doing us a lot of harm. It had to be the America that got us out of this. So a bill was passed that allowed him to make new trade agreements around the world. And the first wave, it took two years to get the first wave agreed. And the UK-US UK trade deal was actually finally signed in 38. And from that point, things got a little bit better. Over 1,028 economists were so put out by the idea of these tariffs that they wrote a big article and got the headlines in the New York Times saying we mustn't do this, but they were completely ignored. Post-war, early 20s, the tariff rate was still quite high at 23%. It jumped in the 30 to 38%. And then, under Hoover's Act, it went to 55% was the average tariff on 20,000 goods. And then it gradually dropped again as they freed up the trade things. International trade plummeted at the start of the Great Depression. So other than being a remedy of the problem, it actually became a substantial cause of the problem. And the irony of the whole thing was, and the numbers I've got the numbers here, was that the, the uh, trade with Canada fell so much that, that nearly half of the exports from America to Canada went missing. So though they stopped the imports, they stopped about 10% of imports from Canada, they lost half of their exports. So it actually completely shot the Americans in the foot by actually causing this trade war. 
This is how the papers saw it at the time from Vancouver, so it's Canadian press. And it's really taking the mickey out of Hoover saying, don't worry, we'll put these tariffs on, but the Canadians will just behave as we want them to. So that's what he was telling the American public. A Washington newspaper a year later, which is where the Canadians' response was damaged the American industry. So the papers and the public were very clear that this was a problem, yet it still didn't get sorted out until 34 onwards. The second thing that was the major thing that was going wrong afterwards, after the Wall Street crash, was the American banking system. Now, the American banking system is, wasn't really like the European banking system at this time, what we would call high street banks, by the way. It was very different to that in Europe. It was based on many small banks that served local farming communities. And it was very backward. It had little regulation and in dubious and sometimes corrupt officials. Some larger banks would know better. And many books use the term Wild West banking system at the time. But even in the late 20s, and this is pre the, the Great Depression, you can see that there was an alarming rise in US bank bankruptcies. Many banks were overextended or relied on farming, which wasn't doing well. We'll come back to that later. And at this time, there was no protection for savers. If a bank closed, it meant you lost your money. The stock market crash and decline in industry and agriculture sectors exposed those banks even further. There were more failures. Panic savers withdrew their money from both good and bad banks, causing bank runs and more closures. Between 1930 and 1933, over 8,000 banks closed. That's not 8,000 branches, that's 8,000 banks. And this further damaged public confidence in the economy. What did the government do about it? We've got two triangles there. Each time you see a triangle, it's a government action. The first was by Hoover. He set up the Reconstruction Finance Corporation that lent some money to banks to prop them up. We're going to see more of that in the next few weeks, by the way. It was too little and too late, and nothing substantive was done to address the fundamental problems in the banking system. Roosevelt was very different in terms of his actions. The Glass-Steagall Act required banks to take a liquidity and probity test. They could only reopen, so they were shut as a bank holiday, after passing the tests. And some got some improvement plans and some actually got some financial support. It was a wholesale clear out of the banks and the banking system. And bankers and others complained of restricting free trade. This is the common call from the private enterprise. But the actions were widely applauded by the US public. One of my favorite cartoons of the time, a man joins a queue asking whether it's a bread line or a queue for a run on a bank. But Germans' problems exacerbated the problems for the US bank. The US tried to stay out of European affairs. It had a policy of isolationism at this time. But it did step in when there was a crisis, or a crisis that was likely to hurt them, as if we wanted to look at the detail. European lacked gold, and there's a whole story about the gold reserves and the gold standard, which I'm not going to cover today. But they, it hurt their, the Europeans. So European was very sluggish in this period for most countries. When the protectionist tariffs arrived, they struggled to pay their war debts to the US. And also Germany was refusing to pay or being obstinate about paying its reparations. So the World War I allies, the UK, France, Belgium, took umbrage at this and sought their war debts from the US to be cut. This led to a thing called the Dawes Plan in 1925, which for certain guarantees, Germany's reparations were reduced and it would get some US loans. We'll come back to that. In this plan, the interest payment on loans took precedence over reparation payments. So what happened therefore was the US bank stepped in, the investment bank stepped in, threw money at Germany because they could get a guaranteed return. 
and the interest rates were very good. So for four years, they just threw money at Germany. Germany, rather perversely, thinking that if they gave the money to the banks, it meant they could avoid paying the reparations, so took on more and more debt. Got, it got out of hand. In 1928, Germany fouled on its reparation payments again. And so there was a thing called the Young Plan, uh, which reached a title settlement. It reversed the, that key rule that the reparations got priority over the bank's loans. So the banks ran for cover then. They were really shocked at this. And so the US banks largely pulled out of, of, the, of uh, Germany. The German article of the time, and it says, the young plan, who should pay for it? Then the Wall Street crash happened, and the American banks had big problems at home, let alone abroad. And they also saw the rise of nationalism, and the far right and the far left was, was very active in Germany. And they thought that their new loans were being paying the old loans off. So it was actually a sort of pyramid scheme. So some worried about all the activities and that they might lose their money. So basically the Americans pulled out. They focused on homeward journey, which led to more problems. Some commentary at the time about the American banks' behaviour. I mean, whenever the economy goes wrong, the banks get blamed. Let me talk then about what did the combination of the stock market crash, the tariffs and all those bank crashes mean for unemployment? It soared. This is the US I'm still on. But the numbers in the books vary widely. I was really shocked at how, well, in fact, there was a credibility gap with some of the books. I couldn't believe how. Um, so I went right back to academic papers, which was a mistake because it took me so long to work out. And there's all sorts of different analysis and techniques that were used on the 1930s data. Luckily, there's a seminal paper of 1985 that compared 10 different methods that various books had used and concluded that two were the sound and the rest were... They were very polite about it, but were shaky at least. Um, so I've taken one of those here. So this is one of the better regarded data sources. And actually, the US Census Department uses this data now. Uh, it didn't earlier on. Frankly, you just have to look at the shape of the curve to say, what a problem. It was averaging about 4 or 5%, and it now has jumped to 18% during the Great Depression period. So uh, US unemployment was severe. Now, what did they do? I'm not going to spend... There's a lot of triangles here. I originally wrote every one of these out in terms of the law changes and what they meant. But what did Hoover and Roosevelt actually do? Hoover viewed government's role more as a facilitator rather than actually stepping in and taking over. And so his actions... To be fair, at the time, it didn't look as going to be as bad as it turned out to be. But he secured promises from leading businesses to maintain wages and spend on plant and maintenance and be active. But alas, the companies did initially maintain the wages, but all they did was cut the jobs instead. So that, that rather didn't help. Um, he ordered federal departments to speed up construction projects and he asked the state governors to do the same. But because their income was starting to fall, they didn't really able to do very much about that. He did set up the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, RFC, which provided emergency funds to businesses and, and, and to some, some of the banks as well. And importantly, he doubled the spend on public spending on dams and projects like that, Hoover Dam type things, run by this RFC organisation. Opinions vary quite a lot about the extent this was successful. I think most people think it was good. His actions didn't really help that much because the line keeps going upwards in terms of unemployment. So it didn't really address the problem. Roosevelt was bolder with federal-driven agenda, much more so. I don't have the time to go through every initiative, but there are five big ones. 
and even this is quite heavy going. So there was a thing called the Federal Relief Act, the Civil Works Administration, the Works Program Administration, and the Public Works Administration. So that's FERA, CWA, WPA, and PWA. The New Deal was full of acronyms. Actually, when you read the books, the public really understood the difference between each one. It wasn't as if this was thoroughly confusing. Nevertheless, there were quite a lot of overlaps between them. Each programme had its issues, but they did, between them, employ over 30 million more people than would have been done without them. There was some dole payment as well, but the emphasis was on expecting people to work and the dignity from doing so. The Civilian Corporation, Conservation Corporation, CCC, put men to work to protect forests and natural resources. 300,000 took part at any one time, 3 million over its lifetime. It was strangely it was run by the War Department and it had quite a quasi-military feel to it. But it was relatively uncontroversial and it was quite one of the most popular New Deal programmes. I've highlighted the Tennessee Valley Authority Act, a TVA. Their role was to build more dams and generate cheap hydroelectricity in the south of the country. The public or private provided electricity was already a hot political potato after the Hoover era. Uh, there were accusations of socialism and monopolies rang out. In the reality, the private companies avoided building electricity plants in rural low-profit areas, holding regions back from development. And so the TVA rather illustrates the problem that uh, Roosevelt had, which was there was a tightrope between wanting to support free trade but willing to override them if he felt necessary in order for things to happen. And that's true of most of the initiatives. So there was a lot more work out there, but the reality was it never got back to the position that it was in the 1920s. And it was also an awful large spend. But unemployment was only part of the problem. The workers' hours were reduced and pay was cut. And I've done some detailed work on this. The pay packet that you took home each work went down from an average between about 15 to 25% less. So a quarter less is what was in your pay packet. However, the reality was prices were also falling as well. So the net spend capability of people went down by about 10%. You can imagine that happening now here, that people had 10% less to, of real money to be able to spend. That would be very difficult. Bread lines were a common sight. Images of them have become an iconic part of the Great Depression. Another feature, and I hadn't heard this before, I don't know why, was at Hoovervilles. The president mocking name given to shanty towns that popped up as the people lost their homes and moved to the edge of town in temporary lodgings. So what was done by the government on welfare, the US government on welfare? Well, unlike most parts of Europe, there was no social security system in place. The safety net was charity-based, sometimes with local government support. But as things got worse, this was unsustainable. Hoover's response, he did four different things. He persuaded Congress to release agricultural surpluses held by the Federal Farm Board to relief agencies, a small thing but quite useful. He set up the President's Emergency Committee for Employment, PECA, to coordinate state and local relief programs, but he gave them no money. So although he had admin and logistics, it didn't really work and it, it, it fell over. But as things got worse, he did set up two useful things. He set up the Federal Home Loans Bank to protect people from losing their homes. This had a more positive impact and was a forerunner for what Roosevelt did later. And in 1934, he approved the federal loans to individual states to give relief, something that had not really largely been done before. On the face of it, the New Deal initiatives look quite puny. There are only two of them. But in practice, the unemployment initiatives I'd said on the previous one quite often had welfare elements built within them. So we've covered part of it already. 
but the two new ones turn out to be substantive and have changed US life. The Homeowner Loans Act acquired distressed mortgages, giving bonds to the loaners, and the homeowners got new mortgages that were over a longer period of time and much lower interest rates. In its three years, it made over a million loans. It actually closed making a slight profit, which everyone expected the taxpayer to take a hit and it was seen as one of the most successful initiatives from the Roosevelt era. And the second one, the Social Security Act, is probably the biggest act of his time. It guaranteed for the first time pensions to millions of Americans, it set up unemployment insurance, and its federal role in both the care of dependent children and the disabled. Its goals were way beyond the immediate relief, and it put in the fundamentals of a welfare system in the US. There were many compromises, Congress scrapped health insurance as a bridge too far, and we know about the American system today and the issues around health care. Opponents took the whole Social Security Act to court, the Republicans mainly, but its existence was upheld. There were quite a lot of big acts later on in the period to provide more of a welfare system, but they were way behind Europe in terms of speed of doing it. But there was quite a lot of conflict in the US. There were many strikes, disputes and marches through the 1930s. Most were largely peaceful, but some were not. Here are two examples often referred to in books. The Bonus Army Marches of 1932 was where the World War I veterans gathered in Washington, D.C. to de demand early cash redemption for their bonus certificates for their military service that wasn't due until 1948, but they wanted the money now. The demonstration was harshly broken up by the Army. Public opinion largely supported the marches, and this damaged Hoover's reputation. The second one, in the Longshoremen Strikers of 1934, Dockers, in every US West Coast state walked out, demanding union recognition. It lasted 83 days and came to head with two deaths on a march in San Francisco. This led to a general strike in San Francisco, and it was then settled down and uh, union recognition was granted. So there was a lot of, of, of activity in this one. Let me just talk about the number of working days lost due to strikes. Amazing data you can get back right back to the raw 30s here. So the average in the 1920s on that, and look at just how low the strike levels were, man days lost. But you can see it rising and then uh, ebbing away, and the trend curve there with the exception of 1937. In 1930, it would have been low. People were keeping their heads down just to keep their jobs. But they gradually got their voice uh, and stood up to authorities. Why were the strikes so high in 1937? Again, here's the government acts. Here's Hoover's actions there. The more you read it, the more you realise that he actually took on more than was, he's been granted for in many books. He, he did two acts, the Dow-Bacon Act and the Norris Glagardi Act. Between them, they mandated pay levels for federally funded projects and gave some protection to unions against prosecution by employers. Though limited, they did trail things for what Roosevelt did later. Roosevelt's initiatives founded on a principle of needing a counterbalance to big business and the banks, who he regularly pilloried for causing the Depression to start with. Part of the National Industrial Recovery Act, NERA, guaranteed workers' rights to unionise and bargain collectively. The National Labour Relations Act, that actually gave more rights to them, but it actually also put some supervision over unions who were starting to behave badly in some places. And the FLSA is about uh, minimising children's labour. There were lots of children's labour happening at the time and some other good practices that we recognise today, overtime payments and so on, uh, minimum maximum hours. 
So the reason for the peak in 1937 was largely about union recognition. It was a tense time because employers tried to undermine the new laws that Roosevelt brought in, and so they took them to the courts and they also fought against them, Ford and many other organisations. So industrial action then followed for the union recognition, and largely they won out. And as you know, the US is quite unionised today. Flight of farmers from the World War I, where they made a lot of money, the 20s were difficult. Now life got worse. The mechanised farming meant that supply completely outstripped demand. Prices had fallen below the production costs, and many farm closed, and there were lots of evictions. And the problems for farms got worse with the Dust Bowl in the southern states of the US. The severe dust storms were caused by mechanised farming on inappropriate crops, on unanchored soil that just turned it to dust. For affected farmers, it destroyed their entire businesses. It's estimated about 2.5 million people left the Dust Bowl states, and that's probably the highest migration at any one time in the period of the US. They're called Okies, is the nickname for the people that moved. Yeah, so difficult times. What did the government do about this? I just want to show you this chart first. Um, this chart shows farm prices, which is a sort of equivalent to pay, if you can think of that most farmers were small businesses at the time. So I've used 1930s, the reference point. The dark blue, purple, is how much money they were making in, uh, relative to 1930 during the war. They made good money. In the 1920s, where they moaned a lot, had gone down. But you can see what happened to farm prices in the 1930s, uh, uh, very, very low. Hoover took one act, and this was before the stock market crash, the Agricultural Marketing Act. It wasn't particularly successful. What he tried to do was they bought up the surpluses that were being made by the farmers, and they stored them away, which they used later. Um, but the scheme backfired because the farmers then just produced more and more and more, which means they were getting the money back from government. So actually it had exactly the wrong effect because there was already too much supply already. So actually it was a disaster and it made matters worse. So it was a very poor outcome. Roosevelt had a particular commitment to farming. This may be political because much of his voting base was actually, for the Democratic Party, was from farmers in the South, or at least the white farmers in the South. We'll come back to that later. The Farm Credit Act set up the farm credit system, providing cooperative-style loans to, for farmers. And about two million farmers directly or indirectly used the financing, and it was realised it, it was a great success, and again, the loans were largely repaid. The Agricultural Adjustments Act paid farmers to leave fields fallow. Now, this was quite controversial at the time because you were actually stopping people from actually producing and leaving the land fallow. We've had this with CAP in Europe, uh, and lots of controversies out there. And the AIA ran into lots of problems. Farmers and payment estimators got into large arguments and some violence. And actually it was being almost impossible to police the farmers from actually not using the land, even though they'd been paid not to. It was taken to the Supreme Court by the Republicans as unconstitutional. And it did fall over the first time on a technicality that actually the states had the right to do it, but not federal level. But they introduced a new bill in 1938 and it became standard practice. It did improve the income for the farmers. You can see the, the curve got better, but actually the farmers were not happy. But some would say farmers are never happy. So Let's go on to immigration. Now, what happened about immigration? This shows how immigration fell from the very high level in the early 1900s. The triangle marks the, the two pieces of legislation that happened, or the acts that happened in the period. 
Um, uh, concern with immigration, um, in 1924, the Coolidge government uh, put, took a fairly loose, quote, can you, fairly loose quota system and hardened it up. Uh, it's a very strange formula um, that they use. And they, as part of that, in, they banned all Asians from going to the US. And then as unemployment rose, Hoover introduced an executive order requiring all immigrants to have a job before they arrived in the US, a very practical measure at the time. Um, and you can see that the devastating change in numbers. And as some of this is people themselves decided not to go to America because it was in trouble. So it's not entirely driven by legislation. But nevertheless, you can see the dramatic impact it had. There was some enforced repatriation. Hoover pushed the Bureau of Immigration to relentlessly remove illegals and criminals from the US. But the most exciting example in, in lots of books is Mexican repatriation. There was a mass deportation scheme that was operated between the US states, not federal, and Mexican government between 1929 and 1936. There's no evidence that Hoover ordered it, but neither did he stop it, and nor did Roosevelt actually let it run as well. The estimates ranged quite widely between 400,000 and 1.8 million people that were repatriated. And the extent it was forced, encouraged, or voluntary is disputed in the books. Quite vehemently, you get very different views as to that. What about racial equality? Whoa, difficult territory now. This is the most diverse opinion I, could, I, just, well, I couldn't fathom it out. I just could not work out. Frankly, you could read any book and have any opinion you like from the matter. So it's hard to tell. So I've tried to get back to some raw data and facts that, as far as you can tell. So I'll give you those. So the African-Americans, as the Hispanics and Chinese, were commonly the first people to be laid off from their jobs, often to be replaced by white workers. Actually, the same is true of women. They often lost their jobs first. Yet later, there's evidence of the reverse, that factory employers in the north took on black labor in preference to white because it was at lower cost. So both examples are out there. Make, take your own opinion from it. On the pay gap between the blacks and whites, and there's some amazing data on this, which literally is tables of blacks at the top written. This is the government reports. It says blacks pay levels, whites pay levels, and you go, wow, different times, I suppose. On the gap between pay, the best research sources say that, th that there was a gap, uh, but it actually slightly narrowed over the period, actually. So it got slightly less, the pay gap, during the period. But that's partly because there was a large African-American migration to the north where the pay levels were slightly better than in the south, so it's slightly distorted figures. In the welfare programs, blacks often receive substantially less aid than whites. Some charitable organisations just refused all blacks. There's some horrible pictures of signs saying blacks refused in the, in the queues. But later there's evidence that the welfare aid was more equally spread. The period did see new organisations to represent African-American interests. The Roosevelt administration had many black leaders. Pundits alluded to a thing called the Black Cabinet. And many authors say that FDR avoided the race issue as he relied on local politicians' cooperation in the South. But Eleanor Roosevelt, the president's wife, was active meeting all types of communities, and she is known to lobby her husband hard to write injustices within the New Deal initiatives. But if you step back from this, if you take voting behaviour as a proxy for how African-Americans felt of the New Deal, then the verdict is clear. Previously, most black voters sided with Republicans, mainly because the Democratic Party suppressed the rights in the South. But that changed. After four years of the Roosevelt's New Deal, 
African-Americans largely switched allegiance to the Democrats from 1936, and importantly, they stayed with them. I can't decide whether it's good or bad. I think it's a mixed picture. The Great Depression brought anger and distrust of government. Could it have led to revolution? The US had its fair share of colorful and charismatic characters who denounced the government. Some proposed themselves as saviors of the country. I, I, there are some beautiful stories of some of the people and what they promised. There are too many to, uh, to name or elucidate on today. But let's talk about the political parties on the, on the extreme left and right. So the Communist Party was very active in this period, but the evidence shows it was more focused on securing pay and worker rights rather than regime change. The socialist movement did gain traction in some areas, such as California, but it rather petered out. A thing called the Farmer Labour Party did have Congress representation, but it was on the wane by this time. There were very strong proponents of free trade and get back and, get and kill all this New Deal stuff off, particularly from the Republican Party and big business. And so there was quite a lot of that around. And there was some fascist organisations, there's some photographs that you can find, such as the Black Re Legion of the KKK, but they were rather on the periphery and they didn't really have mainstream presence. But as this chart shows, the public really did stay committed to democracy. Hoover, yes, he was ousted, he was unpopular in 1932, and the Republicans were out from the, the Senate and the Congress at the time. If you look at the electoral turnout and the voting patterns, the two main party system really did stay in place over this difficult period. So you can argue it's a, it's a locked out system, you can't do much about it, but nevertheless it did very well. One of the things that's regularly commented in the books is that Roosevelt was astute at reinsuring and engaging with the public through regular radio broadcasts, and it's cited in many books as one of the reasons for the failure of alternative regimes and the endurance of US democracy. I don't think you can say that, but it, nevertheless there's a lot of commentary about that. But how did the, the two presidents or the, in the period do overall? Opinions vary on nearly every law, every change, every action that Hoover and Roosevelt took. So I thought, how could I give you a, a sort of average of an average view? And I thought I'd use the internet rating one to five stars. Yeah, think TripAdvisor. Uh, yes, it's, light, it's lightweight, but it does provide some sense of opinion. And in the scoring, what I've done is I've ignored the extreme books, and we'll come back to extreme books later, and I've taken the sort of balance view books in the middle, how they sense these things are working. The summary of Hoover's histories. We've gone through all of the list earlier on in the triangles, and the scores are mixed. Yeah? Some initiatives lessen the depression impact, though most authors say they were insufficient. Others say that Hoover's mindset meant he didn't address the systemic failures, and so his actions were merely sticking plasters. My take is Hoover did break new ground, intervening at a federal level that had never been seen before, even if sometimes their reach was limited. But despite Hoover's efforts uh, to revitalise the economy, the public blamed him for the Great Depression. They, we always do, don't we? We always find someone to blame. That's where we have to. But, and he was generally loathed in the books talk about that. What about Roosevelt then? So the, there are so many, there are 220 books dedicated to the New Deal, and it, they are all over the place. I mean, some of them say that it's like a saintly exercise, and some say it was ruinous for the US. So really extremes. This is a, about the reform side of, of his early work to address the structural issues in the way the economy worked. No longer would business and banking have the freedom they'd enjoyed. In this list, he tackled commercial banks, stock values, stock markets, investment banks, and the Federal Reserve. And, and ratings are high. 
Many of the reforms that were put in place then are still in place today, adjusted of course. Uh, and they, despite the powerful interests of vested bodies, FDR took them on and brought stability and was widely applauded for the, his reforms. What about relief and recovery? It was full of legislation. He really did work to the sort of 100-day 100 100 day type principle. And almost every American found something to be pleased about and something that they didn't like at all. Having covered most of the legislation here, I just want to cover one, one that I didn't cover, and that's a part of the National Industrial Re Recovery Act, where he relaxed antitrust laws. And it was very controversial. It meant that free trade, as we would understand, it was largely parked. Uh, he required companies to self-regulate fixed wages, fixed prices, and work to fixed quotas. It was too intrusive and it became rather bureaucratic. Lawsuits were abound and the Supreme Court struck it down. It was a bridge too far. But that said, in general, his initiatives are seen in pretty good light by most of the middling books, the balanced books. What about his later period then? There were fewer initiatives. He couldn't keep that run rate going, and politics plays its part in this. But many of these turned out to have longer-term consequences, mainly good. Again, I've covered each of them. In the books of the balance, again, it's generally positive, though nearly all of them caveat on just the amount of money he threw at these things in order to make them happen. So even though the economy dipped, what's the outcome in this one? The economy did dip in 37 to 38, but over the whole period while he was in office, the average growth of GDP was 5% per annum, which was a very good figure, but of course it was from a low base, having had the crash. The New Deal was experimental and rough at the edges. Overall, it softened the effect on the economic crisis with a positive impact on the lives that were facing real hardships. But there is a strong argument that from many economists that some other ministries may actually have prolonged the time it took to full re make recovery. So the compensation mechanisms of putting people into work meant that the, the real uh, business, private enterprise, was slower in coming back. And that's a common argument used in many books. But once again, a common view is that the New Deal inspired confidence into the public. Just by having the initiatives and the public seeing changes happen was a major factor in promoting self-belief and some form of recovery. Nevertheless, you won't be surprised, cartoonists were savage. Uh, the number of cartoons that mock Roosevelt exceeded that of Hoover. Though there was more to shoot at, he did a lot more. What about the longer-term consequences? If we step back from the detail, the worldwide Great Depression was not a financial crisis, but a sequence of interconnected crises, making the net effect much greater. Almost certainly a recession was going to be inevitable, but the government and financiers made some wrong choices and left underlying problems unaddressed. These turned it from a recession into the Great Depression. So we've seen the economic, political, employment and welfare short-term consequences. Let's have a look at the longer term. There was an acceptance by the US, by both government and most of the public, to move from a raw free trade uh, towards regulated capitalism with insurance against hardship. It was only in the mid-70s when there was a resurgence of the Republican fortunes an agenda of self-sufficiency and small government came back in. And we still see that tension in the US today. In Europe, various forms of welfare state were already in place prior to the Depression. Curtis saw an increase in its size, but it was under great pressure because it, the, the Europeans couldn't afford it. But post-World War II, economic growth has allowed welfare systems to expand, 
largely, not entirely, with public support. Let me go on to four questions to close them. Was the Great Depression a material cause of World War II? There's a lot of books that say it is. Some of the less intellectually sound books might be true. Many books say that it is. I think a better way of looking at it is that the root causes of the Great Depression in Germany were the same as those that brought the regime change, Treaties of Versailles and so on, the reparations, the large debts that were taken on, and the breakdown in international relations. The other factors of the Wall Street crash, protectionism, banking problems, probably didn't help, but they were straws that broke the camel's back rather than the root causes. That's a personal view. So could the World War II have happened anyway? Second question, has the Great Depression changed public attitudes to taking investment risks? Don't know how many of you have bought shares here. Probably feeling a bit looking at your numbers at the very moment. Research in 2007 had a, was an amazing piece of work. Looked at the people's willingness to take risk and invest in shares over many decades. Found that 26% of the US adult population have bought share, are buying shares. That's the average. But for those that lived through the Great Depression, it was only 13%. And those that had experienced later recessions, being share owners when it had gone down, it was also well below the 26% mark. But in contrast, people who bought shares that had yet to face a recession, it was 32%. So though all the evidence is out there, you can look on the internet, you know there's going to be market bubbles, you know there's going to be these problems, all the history is there to take. It's only when you personally experience a loss that it dents the appetite to buy shares. So a, a psychologist apparently call this optimism bias which is denial of risks until they actually happen to us. So the answer to the question is there's plenty of punters still out there willing to invest in shares and take undue risks. Third question, has economic crisis prevention improved since, since the Great Depression? Now there's lots of regulatory controls, there's a thing called the SEC and there's equivalents in, in each European state. And, and then our integral part of stock trading, lending and banking. And they were first integrated in the Great Depression. So there are things in place that should stop it from happening, but in reality, they still happen. The US 2008 subprime mortgages abuses were not spotted in advance or prevented, or they were spotted and then hidden, who knows. The Greek economy crash was made worse by being locked into the euro, equivalent to the gold standard of its day. Even so, no crisis as yet caused a worldwide depression of the scale of the 1930s, probably due to better regulations and those controls than what we're going to follow in the next few weeks. I don't think we're going to have the same. Are the governments and central bankers better able to recover, uh, contain and recover a recession? The answer to this one is uh, yes. Um, and there's a new way of doing things, which is throwing money at the banks. That's the way we do it now. At that time, they didn't do that as much. It didn't seem to be the thing. There was a big argument about two different ways of doing it. But it didn't, it didn't, whereas now, if you look at the 2008, and Gordon Brown was part of this, you know, they really did prop up the bank system very well and kept things afloat. So the protectionism has largely gone. It's not as bad as it was. Uh, yeah, you get the odd tiff in China and the US at the moment. But actually, they've never reached the same levels of tariffs as then. So protectionism has been avoided because people have learned the lessons from it. But the most controversial is what should be done when there is an economic downturn. Should you do tighten the budgets, what we call the austerity agenda, or should you provide short-term stimulus, as Sweden did? Um, and the arguments still rage, more in politics as in economics. But most nations, in reality, adopt the austerity agenda. We certainly have uh, when we needed to. 
And the reason that governments find it, having turned the spend tap on, they find it really hard to then turn it off. So having the Keynesian type, you know, let's stimulate the economies, you can't stop spending the money. And to some degree, Roosevelt did have that problem as well. And we're also looking over our shoulders at the, the reaction of the city and Wall Street as to whether we would or wouldn't uh, spend too much. So there's some care around that. So mainly the austerity agenda has taken over, uh, stays, as was done in the Great Depression. So to conclude, this is the books published, uh, how many in each decade? Uh, and you can see that the, actually the number of publications is still going upwards. It dropped in the 40s, probably because people were busy doing other things. I mean, and I wonder, what can they possibly find to write about that's new? Yes, there's a lot of regurgitation, but actually some of them have genuinely got new insights. From the 1970s, there's been a lot of books from a sociological and people story perspective, and I would recommend some of the books are fantastic personal stories. The economic side still gets new books, mainly comparing about recent events, you know, what happened in 2008 versus... Uh, so they tend to be comparative and learnings from that one, but they do give new insights. A concerning trend is the number of books, new books, recent books, that have an underlying political agenda. They skew the Great Depression story with selective use of the facts. We may worry about fake news in social media, but it's still alive in old media as well. So I want to get a view as to how does the Great Depression compare to other major events that main materially affected humankind in the 20th century. So I used Google, that omnipresent search engine, typing in great human tragedies of the 20th century, I got returned a list of 15 seismic events. And these are the 15, and one of them is the Great Depression. With the exception of the Great Depression, they've all got at least one million, and many of them over 10 million deaths. So I, I sort of went, a rather depressing list, by the way, and you can still see that such tragedies are still happening in recent times. So I was trying to understand why this could be the case. How could the Great Depression appear on the same list? So I looked into, and I did another little mini-project, to look at the research of mortality rates through the Great Depression. Now, opinion is changing every decade, almost it flip-flops, but there's been a, some fanta a fantastic report done in uh, 2008, and, and it found that actually in the Great Depression period, the health of the US nation improved. The mortality rates went down. But it says that it, it was driven by advances in medicine and public health care, and they um, far outweighed anything to make it beyond measurable as to whether the economic effect had it was a plus or a minus. Um, so there's and some really clever, a very clever piece of research, actually partly led by the UK. So how is it that the Great Depression, which didn't materially affect death rates, appear on that same list? I was struggling at that point. And I went back to the books and tried to find out why they think it has. And these are the reasons that they're given. There's a danger I end up reading a list here. But the reasons they think it's so prominent in 20th century history is that it was like an uncontrollable infection. That because it's linked to two world wars, it was either caused by or a cause of, so that makes it a big standing. That's one of the reasons they give. There's quite a lot about how the Western political system struggled to handle it. You know, democracy and suffrage and extended suffrage was is quite a lot of the material around that. Part of the reason they're given is because it keeps happening, not to the same degree, but we still see all these booms and busts. And the last one, it shines light on human frailties. I, you know, it's a people's story, and so that's why it's so, so popular as a, a, to be written about. They're largely about vulnerability, susceptibility, 
that was then and still applies today. That's the nature of that list. But I'm not that convinced that list is strong enough to justify why it would be one of the seismic events of the 20th century. So I'm going to leave, leave, you, leave you with my cynical views to why it's... Or maybe it's this, which is actually, because it had a profound impact on the US, and the US dominates media, it's got the voice, Hollywood, da -de 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 -de. They, it promotes the American story. It's the American story. It's the American time period we use. Why do we use American when most other countries didn't have the same thing? So argument number one is it's the Americans that are dominating the story. The second one, and apologies to any historians in the room, but you can't stop talking about it. You've got a story, you've got, you want to have your view, so let's publish it. And there's lots of publishing houses that will keep publishing, even if it's regurgitation of stuff. So lots of economists, and of course economists always have different views. The last one, which, is, which I saw in the most recent books, is it's, it's, it's a weapon. It's being used to tell a story of what happened then to apply to the political situation, mainly in the US today. And there's a few books that illustrate that now. So that's my cynical view as to why it's, it's the part of the story. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A History Group, or the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening.